0: well 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 we are back again and we're entering a new phase of the social network one that is focused on meeting people who i've never met before or i've never had a previous conversation and while we'll still have uh, those folks on the show for sure an exciting element is that we're going into the unknown with a lot of people who when we log on through the Anchor's recording app. It will be the first time that I've heard their voice, that they've heard my voice, and we will kick it off from there and see how that goes. I'm really excited about it. I love meeting new people, and I hope that the show is a platform uh, for teaching and learning how to just connect with people. It's something I feel like we've kind of lost these days, so I'm excited to present to you a brand new person, Sarah Dis, who is referred to me, actually, by Justin Hager whose episode on social authenticities has been really well received I definitely um, want to let you guys know to go check that out it's a really cool episode but Sarah is a really awesome person from what Justin tells me and you know she's pursuing her PhD in community health at the Oregon Health Science and Portland State University Joint School of Public Health uh, she's doing some really amazing things um, you know she's looking at, she's a budding gerontologist working with older adults you know, in assisted living and memory care and a graduate research assistant at the Institute of Aging at Portland State. And I just think there's some really good things we can learn from Sarah and um, some interesting questions I would like to ask her about public health at large. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to present to you guys Sarah Diss. sarah hello how are you today
1: i'm doing quite well how are you today darian
0: I. <clears throat> okay let's set the record straight you and i have never spoken before
1: nope not once <laughs>
0: not. nope no we don't know each other from anywhere really but i'm so happy you're on the show today and thankful for uh i think it was justin who introduced you to me correct
1: Yes, yes. I'm super excited to be here. I love the concept of your show, and Justin showered you with praise and compliments. I'm so excited to learn more about you.
0: Wow, wow, that's amazing. For those of you who don't know, Justin Hager was one of our early episodes and uh, entitled Social Authenticity, and uh, Justin's just a good dude and uh, really open and honest, and I'm happy he's uh, really fulfilling what he's trying to do. So it's great. And I'm very thankful he said some nice things. So he sent you my way and I was very curious about what you're up to. I'm reading through your bio, looking through about I see research. I'm like, oh I like to talk about that. Like, <laughs> wanna, I wanna know what you're up to. So we're going to discuss that stuff. Uh, but tell us where you're from
1: where I'm from, well Originally, uh, I was born and raised in Massachusetts um, to two wonderful, wonderful parents and spent the majority of my life out there. I was born out there. I went to school out there. I, did, uh, I went to college uh, at, and my, did my master's at Clark University in central Massachusetts. And now I am in Portland, Oregon. Still in school. <laughs> I've, I've Still in school. Through. Yes, yes. I'm one of one of those uh, individuals who uh, didn't quite take a break. Um, I got my bachelor's in 2015 in psychology, and um, was fortunate to go to a school where, if you had, if you reached a certain GPA threshold. Um, you were allowed to stay an extra year and, and do a master's. So that's what I did. Mm. I stayed and I got my master's in public administration. And uh, the next year I started my PhD in community health.
0: Always well, we sound very similar. I did not take a break either. I went straight through, got my doctorate without stopping. So um, I know exactly what that is definitely like doing that.
1: I knew if I took a break or by taking a break, entered the working world, I don't think that I'd have the wherewithal to rejoin academia again. So if I was going to do a PhD, it it had to be right after my master's or it wasn't going to happen.
0: I had the same feeling. I was like, I can't stop. If I do, I'll start making money or whatever, and I I will not go back to school for that. So totally get that. Totally get that. Now you say you're from Massachusetts. I've been there many times. You don't sound like you're from Massachusetts.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm I'm fortunate not to have a very strong accent. It does it does come out. It does come out once in a while, especially when I get, Now when
0: does it come out? Yeah.
1: When when I get excited, when I when I'm out with friends or when especially when I'm laughing or telling jokes, if I'm speaking really quickly and impassioned um i I tend to drop my r's just just you do the
0: yard you know for the park you know
1: act the can have it yad.
0: yeah yeah (laughs) my father-in-law is from uh, uh massachusetts and i can't remember the name of the town but he definitely has that whole accent going there or the dropping of the r's you
1: know yes my dad very very strong I wouldn't say it's a Boston accent because there are actually different types of accents within Massachusetts. They I know. It's
0: weird though.
1: Abrasive and, and definitely abrasive, New England. Um, but yeah, he, he, my dad definitely has an accent and my mom hates it.
2: She <laughs>
0: hates it. Really? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. funny.
1: Yeah, she, um, yeah, my mom is, uh, she moved to the U.S. when she was 12 with her parents from Lebanon. Hmm. So they they were in Massachusetts because one of her dad's brothers, um, they were escaping the civil war that was um, up and coming in the 1970s.
2: Back oh, in okay.
1: And uh, one of her uncle had moved to the U.S. previously and brought the entire family over, and he happened to be in Massachusetts, and that's where they all are.
0: And is that's where said? it worked out, Massachusetts, <laughs> yeah. man. I tell you, this is the only state I've been in where I was afraid for my life driving. I'm telling you,
1: it is. It is something else. It, people, there are no rules to the road. No. There is my way and my way first.
0: Yeah. It was a crazy experience, actually. I was like, this is uh, this is not safe. I don't know. I'm sorry, Massachusetts people, but your driving's nuts. <laughs> it's nuts, man. So how'd you get interested? in so you, Massachusetts to Portland, what, what, what got you all the way out that way? I mean, I know school, but like, was there a certain pull towards Portland State?
1: No, actually, I um, in looking for PhD programs. I was I had been working at a city department of public health, mm-hmm. and my original goal was to do a combined MD PhD, um, because I was that's the track that I was on in undergrad. I really I was interested in neuroscience and mm. dementia and how the brain works. And I had connections um, with the University of Massachusetts Medical School, where I did um, work and volunteer for a time. And I knew people. I knew several individuals who were on the MD-PhD track. And I was like, all right, so you might as well have it all if it's a possibility. Um, right. And then uh, as I was coming out of my undergrad, I realized that I felt... I felt sort of forced in going in that medical direction. Um, it's popular. It's, it's a cool thing to be able to say to people, hey, I'm interested in going to medical school, you know? Uh, <laughs> like there's this, I don't know if it's a, it's a sense of, of wanting to be perceived as intelligent or hardworking or what have you, but that I was very attached to the stereotype of, of being a medical student. Um, I I realized like working in the Department of Public Health, that the things about health and about people's health, especially that I was interested in, had nothing to do with their biophysical um, phenomena whatsoever. It Mm -hmm. had to do with the social aspects of health. How is our economy connected to health? How is racism connected to health? Something that, that is collectively to, what I learned in coming to school, how we're here in Portland, as the social determinants of health. I didn't have a name for it before I applied to school, but those were the things, like, why, what about society and what about people um, aside from their biology, makes them sick? So I see. Yeah, so I had, um, I was applying for work and I said, you know, I'm going to apply for PhD programs in case work doesn't pan out or I can't find a job. And I was looking for public health oriented programs. Um, So there are several, I mean, you can get your PhD in public health. There's a doctor of public health degree program Uh, But what I was interested in at the time and what I was applying for um, were prevention science. So how can we stop things that we know are adverse from happening? So there is an injury prevention science program that's actually at Washington State University. Mm -hmm. uh, And that was my top choice. But uh, my current supervisor and mentor, Dr. Paula Carter, had reached out to me and had said that she saw my application, Um, in my application, I had to submit a writing sample. And that writing sample talked about community-based efforts to reduce um, falls in older people who live out in the community. Um, It's a huge problem that can cascade into many different types of decline for an older person. A fall is one of the worst things that can happen. So she, I got my application got flagged here at Portland State and um, she invited me to consider uh, gerontology or studying aging in older adults as a potential uh, career and academic choice. And, um, her interest in me and our conversations leading up to when I had to make a choice to attend a PhD program, um, is what brought me to Portland
0: state. Wow. Nice story. That's awesome. Really good stuff. Yeah. thank so, you. So of course that, uh, man, that brought up a lot for me, a whole bunch. <laughs> I had some other stuff. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to backtrack here. So. And you talk about the social aspects of people being uh, sick. Yeah. What, is curr- what is your current, what uh, is your current basically understanding or what, what do you think the perception is of public health at large and whether it's a social issue or whether it's a different type of issue?
1: So this kind of harkens back to our general philosophies around how we understand society. So something that I've learned and embraced and have practiced discussing are these, this somewhat dichotomous um, view of what society is like. So on the one hand, we have social justice, the belief that um, a democratic society is, um, is kind of our goal, there are um, social forces that uh, impact how different types of people move through the society. So whether that's through the economy, through careers, or just navigating resources and access to geography, um, as well as the belief that it is not, it is our responsibility. And I emphasize the, the term our, um, mm-hmm. it, it is our responsibility to lift Everyone in our society up, as opposed to market justice principles, um, which are centered, which which is centered in kind of our uh, in capitalism, where it is the individual's responsibility towards upward growth and upward movement that you have from your um, capital, from your money, from your uh, social relationships. Um, from your health is all to do with the individual choices that you make. Right. And so that was presented to me as a dichotomy, um, as a, as a purveying uh, value system in what we have particularly in the United States. However um, what I've learned and what I'm hoping to share through the work that I do is that, dichotomies are pretty freaking useless, Mm. right? There's, there's definitely more than two sides to a story. So you have, um, you have individual choices that are certainly important. Like you can't, you can't just say that society is to blame for everything. Of
0: course Uh,
1: there, there are individual choices that one can make to better their own health, to better their own situation. However, it is, um, what is the best word to choose here? It is irresponsible to say that only individuals are responsible for where they are in their lives. We're an interconnected people, right? Yes. We do not exist in silos. We do not <laughs> exist outside of, outside of the um, impressions as well as experiences of other people we are interconnected whether we want to be or not um and that's the beauty and sometimes the curse of being human so things like um i mentioned a few before but like our the popular isms when we talk about isms capitalism racism
2: mm-hmm.
1: um those types of phenomena are socially experienced. You can have an entire community that is priced out um, from where they're living for the benefit of, of a developer to build really, really nice apartment buildings and and to bring a different type of, of person into the neighborhood.
0: So essentially like gentrification. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: gentrification. Um, so what happens to the people that are forced out of where they live? Um, You take somebody's home away, you take away everything. Uh, That cascades down into their food, into their health, into their psychological, emotional viability. Um, And is it an individual's uh, choice that they were priced out of their community? No. So we have things that are occurring at what we call the macro level. Um, so some of the, so that's what I'm talking about, or that's the level that I'm, that I'm referring to when these social forces come in that can impact health. And then there are also choices like, you know, food behavior. If you're going out to, uh, eat fast food for all of your meals and, um, you like spending 12 hours straight binge watching your favorite Netflix show (laughs) power to you, but that's all, that's not going to positively impact your health either. So there are, there are multiple levels at which health is impacted for any individual or any group of people. That's another aspect of it. There are things that affect individuals, but there are also things that affect entire groups of people. And those groups can be, membership into those groups can be classified in a variety of ways, um, by race, by neighborhood, by state, by age. Um, so it's a lot to think about and the complexity shouldn't be scary at all. It's just recognizing that, again, dichotomies are useless and that the interconnectedness is our strength, but also something that we need to understand in order for any
0: real change to happen. Right. You know, it's very interesting, uh, those points of views yeah. and looking at it and it makes me think about how. Then there's a perception sometimes with people, they say, OK, if there's if it's not about the personal accountability and making decisions and pulling yourself up and there's this um, we need to work together, our responsibility. Some people I, I'm not I'm not a proponent of this, but some people might say, well, that's more of a socialist idea mm-hmm. than about that. What, what are your thoughts about that?
1: I mean, I, I would identify as a socialist, if not mm-hmm. a communist. So <laughs> I, I don't have a problem with those ideas in general. Um, but what, what it comes back to me uh, in, I mean, everything that uh, we're discussing here, but also in the context of, of the world that we live in, comes back to something political. Mm. And something that I think about is that, like, what are our values? um, beyond individual values, like what are our human values? And in my ideal world, um, this abstract concept that we've assigned, um, a social construction to be it race, be it money, be it gender. Um, those things, those labels aren't as important to me as is, does everybody, um, have the opportunity to get treatment when they're feeling sick. Right. Does everybody have a place to live, regardless if they can pay two thousand dollars a month in rent. Um, it's it's this. What are we doing in this world, and what are we here for? In my perception right now is um, the goal is to be making money and hoarding money and collecting <laughs> the little of paper that we've assigned value to. Yes. Um, yes. And really. There are so many beautiful things that we as humans with different talents and different perspectives and, and different life stories can come together and, and, and make the world a different place. I think it truly is. It is difficult, but I think it is truly possible to kind of come together as not Americans or otherwise or not as white or otherwise, not Mm -hmm. as poor or rich, but coming together and saying, we're all humans living in a world that is going to be decimated in a few decades due to climate change. And how best are we going to spend that time? You know,
0: you know, you sound like to me, it was interesting. I, and actually this guy was in Portland, not too long ago. What I was thinking About this. This was probably a year ago. I'm a big podcast person. I mean, Mm -hmm. I like listening to podcasts and I felt extremely driven and led to start my own. And I just love talking to people. I enjoy listening and also providing commentary. About a year ago, I listened to a podcast and it had Andrew Yang on it. Oh, yeah. You're familiar with Andrew Yang. He was just in Portland. And um, I was so taken by. His initiatives, you know, humanity first and particularly the the UBI or the freedom dividend, you know, universal basic income. And I had never thought about it like that. And I have many friends who would probably be very against that. Um, But I found myself not being against it. And I found myself going, you know, there's a lot of meat here. And so I'm listening to I'm literally listening to every podcast I can listen to that he's on just to kind of hear what he's talking about. In the whole thing. And, you know, he's a presidential candidate and, and throughout many years of my life, I've, I wouldn't say that I, I have this affiliation with either side or whatever your popular parties and stuff. I just want good people. I want a good person, you know? Sure. Yeah. And he was actually the first candidate in my lifetime that, that I have been like, there's an outsider chance here, but it actually lines up with what the things that I'm more into in my life for that. And when you're talking about kind of the our responsibility and all that, it really made me think of him and and how he has a very similar idea or platform about, you know, especially with the freedom dividend, like, hey, we got to help people have basic basic things in life. And it can't always just be about they just need to do better. They need to pick themselves up and they need to get a better job. But it's, it's more complicated than that. So one, I guess, as a wraparound point is, um, what, do, what are your thoughts about his platform and things like that, if you're aware of that? And, um, you know, where do you think that could be beneficial in our future? I mean,
1: I am all for universal basic income, hands down. Um, before, let me, I, w- I would like to tell you a story uh, mm-hmm. that that your your story reminded me of Mm -hmm. i was in uh sacramento uh visiting my husband Um, that's where he lives and i was taking an uber to his apartment and uh the uber driver was uh i don't know how the topic came up we must have been at an intersection and someone was panhandling um and he had made a comment like you know i don't get it like how are people homeless um you just like go to McDonald's, they're hiring, they're, Mm -hmm. they're like, you know, like just, it's not the job that they might want, but it's a job regardless. Like they, like, why are they just sitting waiting for me to give them my money? And I took pause because, uh, these, this type of rhetoric often brings up a very strong reaction for someone like me. And, you know, I just asked, I, I kind of just asked him a question. I was like, you know, um, That's a fair point, but uh, could you imagine going to a job interview um, wearing the same clothes you've been wearing for six weeks and not having had a shower in two and a half? And he just looked at me and he was like, oh, there was was a complete disconnect from the individual situation of experiencing homelessness and the other consequences of what experiencing homelessness meant. Like you can't just walk into a job interview and expect to get hired. No, And So there's this metaphor that we have in public health coming back to universal basic income and and what the potential for something like that policy could do. Um, So there's this river, right? You're standing at um, the edge of a river and you see a bunch of children floating down river and they're struggling they are drowning. Um, And there's so many of them. You don't know where they're coming from. And your obvious instinct is to jump in and try and save the kids that are coming down the river and and drowning. Um, In your efforts to save all of the children that are coming down the river and struggling, do you have time to think about what's causing the kids to come in from upstream? What's causing all of these kids coming down the river and struggling? We're at a point in this country, and especially in this country, but in the world where all of our resources are focused on those kids struggling and drowning at the end of the river. And we're not looking at what's causing them to get into the river in the first place.
2: Right.
1: So it need, we need a balance. I mean, I'm not saying We're gonna, we need to close the hospitals. Doctors are useless. We can't help people who are currently sick, but we do need more of an attempt to look at long-term solutions. And how do you get to long-term solutions? You need to be willing to look at the cause of causes. Right. You need to look, okay, so if someone in their older adulthood is becoming, or experiencing homeless, or is so functionally impaired from diabetes and chronic illness that they rely on the state or the federal government to pay for their treatment, if that is something that you are interested in stopping or or reducing, you need to go back into their childhoods and early life and make sure they are Mm -hmm. healthy going into adulthood. And that is more than just, hey, go to the doctor, eat your fruits and veggies, that is are people able to afford medication when they need it? Are people able to keep a house and afford food when they need it? Are people able to get the transportation they need to get to work in order to get the income that they need to pay for all of these things? Going back to the complexity that I talked about earlier, it's all interconnected and there's always an antecedent to what we're seeing
0: downstream. Totally. Totally. I, you know, it's, I have these discussions with lots of people throughout the years and, you know, I talked to my wife about it and it's interesting. Like if we, we're very quick to diagnose the symptom of something Mm -hmm. and attack that tremendously, but we, we don't attack the actual cause, the root, the very, the the origin story of that. We, we go, oh, you know, maybe we should look back in the past and really dissect this. We just say, Hey, this is the symptom. And I, I think what was interesting, and I don't usually get into a lot of politics in these talks. But I'm not opposed to it because I think you should just be able to talk about things. Oh, so, definitely. You shouldn't be so worn down by, oh, we can't talk about this or that. I think that's foolish. I think you should just be able to have a conversation, be respectful. But I like what Andrew Yang had said, that that Donald Trump is, is the symptom. He's not the yes. cause. And I think we always, we treat like what's going on in health and, you know, our leaders are, we, we treat them as the symptoms, but we don't really treat the actual cause of the issue, what's going on, you know, and, and his whole thing, you know, with the UBI and automation of jobs and things of that nature, it just, it just reminding me a lot of that with what you're saying when you're speaking. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this, these topics can get super emotional and heated and, and right like like relationship ending types of conversations <laughs>
0: yes and yes
1: i agree like how are we supposed to i think it's beyond finding common ground i mean there's there i yeah. I, have, I have had conversations with people who um there's there's a difference between being open to different perspectives and being openly uh being openly hateful towards towards the perspective other. Um, but if we constantly only talk to people who, um, if we're only constant, if we're only talking to people who uh, have the same ideas as ours, how are we supposed to um, grow? Right. You can't, you can't learn from, you um, you can't learn from people who only think the same as you do.
0: Right. You're just having a similar conversation over and over again. You're agreeing with each other and things of that nature. And I just think it's, it's just interesting. Like I have clients that um, definitely have very different views on, on the leadership of the country. But we've def- definitely challenged each other. We coexist with each other and our points of views. And, uh, and I think it's very healthy. And, and we've had these very long-term relationships through our discourse on some t- topics, but doesn't mean we can't be friendly. I think it's just uh, having these, these conversations are important. And it, it makes me think like, how do you talk to people when, so you're, you're involved in research, I mean, you're involved into this heavy, heavy research about these different topics in public health versus the, the just observational conversation that people are having with you. So one, what is the research? discussing or, you know, indicating in public health at large and maybe take it from a, a large perspective to more of a, a macro the micro? And how do you have those conversations with people who don't maybe have that knowledge and but they believe so passionately about what they're talking about? Yeah, I
1: mean, it's, it's been clear, or from what I've been reading and what I've been exposed to, I mean, these conversations are not new. We might have different names for them. We might have different ways of talking about them. But the fact that there are these um, social forces that, let's be honest, um, are derived from from power imbalances that cause people uh, to be sick, um, that idea has been around since the 1940s and 1950s, if not earlier. Um, And the the idea that we need more evidence, um, to show that those things are happening. I mean, there's, there's plenty of evidence out there and existing it's whether or not you want to face it. So
2: Mm, the,
1: the conversations in public health right now are more focused on, okay, we know that, um, social, uh, characteristics, um, like group membership, uh, like where we live, um, our, I don't know if you're familiar. Um, there's been a lot of work right now uh, going into how, how our zip codes can define our health.
0: Um, I mean, I've heard about it, but not. I don't have an in-depth knowledge about it.
1: Yeah, yeah so the idea that your neighborhood context, um, the, the place, the environment where you live um, can impact your health.
0: Uh, it seems but, to be fairly obvious, I would think, yeah, on some level.
1: One would think. But... You would
0: think so, right?
1: So knowing those things and doing something about it are very, very different. Right. Um, So it's, I mean, it takes the willpower and the money power to be able to make a change at those, at those levels. Um, There was uh, recently in the early 20 teens, uh, there was a neighborhood here in Portland um, that was putting a lawsuit against um, a glass blowing company mm-hmm. because they had not followed um, state and federal regulations to put scrubbers into their uh, exhaust pipes. Um, so all of the byproduct of of their glass production um, was going into this neighborhood, and the the prevalence in a uh, asthma for kids in that neighborhood just skyrocketed. Um, So that's an example of, you know, you have a company or a business that's doing their work um, and is emitting these dangerous pollutants into into the air. Right. And then all of the surrounding people are exposed to that. There are, I mean, so the environmental regulations are in place, are set to curb, curb things um, like that instance from happening. But when you have that kind of exposure, that that sort of like, how how are individuals supposed to protect themselves from something that is all around them? And that, I mean, that's a very that's a very literal example of something uh, of of a public health. research initiative that can be used to derive a solution so in that case the scrubbers were put in um, the company had to pay fines but when it's something even even more abstract than air pollution not that we necessarily see it here um, but when you have an entire community that it is exposed to, to structural racism how without the capital and the willpower of those who are in power to make a change. How are we supposed to? How are we supposed to make any change for the better of everyone? I don't know. This yeah, is to think about.
0: Well, I think it's interesting you said the money power. You know, mm-hmm. I think that there's often this this commentary of well, let me back up. Maybe there's more of a. it's often an idea of. This, this fantastical idea of that we're going to go, we're going to change the world, we're going to do all these things, we're going to create this movement. But there's also this strange reality of, of as you say, money power related mm-hmm. to it, and that it's good to have these great ideas and activities and launch these things and awareness, but it, it also does take money for things to change and leadership who who believes in these things and make in that they make it a priority for these changes and i think sometimes that's always the very difficult thing take like you mentioned climate change which is a gigantic global topic huge topic and you have people on some side, sides who go uh that's not a thing and then you have a lot of other people who say, oh climate change is real and the whole thing And then you have people, you know, your general Americans, people from all over the world saying, how can, how do we, how do we do something? How do I contribute to this? And it's just, it's just interesting how it does in many ways comes down to the money power related to it. And the things that can be done if somebody with the platform, with the willingness to put their money where their mouth is to create the change, because it can't just be the social activists for it. Because uh, it can be, it's just such a huge issue to deal with, you know.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it blows my mind um, and and makes me really critically think about my position doing research to have something that is um, pretty em- empirically agreed upon as a phenomenon that is existing. Uh, for that to be argued at this level, um, it is it is a very humbling. Um, th- I mean, it's scary, but also humbling. Uh, and it makes me think about, okay, um, just because I believe in something and and I believe it to be true, like what even is truth? I was just, I've, mm. I've been reading, um, I've, much of my training has been in, in, in critical theory and critical methods. So to be, to be very upfront and transparent about the biases and assumptions we bring to our research right and and how that impacts any findings or 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 any interpretations of results that we have so um when you have uh this this what i believe should not be controversial topic of climate change um is it that uh is it that People are so scared that they don't want to believe it. Is it that there's such distrust? I mean, the the scientific community is not blameless. Um, like right. we have, there have been many, many unethical um, experiments and and procedures that have come out of the scientific community. So, is it a distrust? Is it an education is, issue? Is it a mix of all of those things? It is, is it our inability to, to have a sense of long-term thinking? Um, so when it comes to the issue of, like, what do we do about it, um, I mean, I always, in conversations with my friends, I just encourage the practice of critical analysis, whatever that looks like. I mean, we have... We have uh, kind of set protocols for that in the research realm, but you don't have to be an academic or have eight million degrees to be a critical thinker. You just need right. to know how to ask a question. It just starts with one question, and that blooms into so much. So learning, something that we have lost, I think, in general, in 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 the communities that I'm involved in, I don't know if you experience this, but we are so itching to have our voices heard that we don't stop, listen, and then prepared to kind of dig in a little deeper on what we're hearing. Um, it's it's mind boggling to me.
0: Well, I think that's that's kind of the issue. I mean, I have experienced it, like something like climate change is. I feel like it's a public health issue that has become a political issue, a oh, partisan sure. issue, when it's, but it's a human issue. Mm-hmm. It's a public health, it's a human public health issue, not a take sides issue. But I think people, sides, want to hear their, their side of it and agree with that side of it versus taking a deeper diver look and let's really see what's going on. Unbiased about us, critically think about it. But I feel like it's just jumped from a public issue to a political issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's I have I have trouble with the the dissection of that. Right. So I mm-hmm. I, I alluded to it earlier. Um, I think, given the way that um, our society is currently structured, especially in the United States, but I mean, it's not just the United States. Anywhere with a somewhat operational government um, is like this, but like everything uh, like political is more than partisanship. Um, Our existence is political. Our, our, uh, whether we, we are in India where class systems are, are ratified or here where class systems um, are experienced, but we pretend that they're not, um, everything about how we exist within this society comes back to something that can be politicized. Of course. Um, and I think the focus has been that, oh, climate change has, has now become the center of politics. And, and the minute somebody mentions politics, their ears, tr- like, depending on who you're with, you can turn somebody off just with the terminology that right. you so the recognition that political doesn't mean like Democrat versus Republican, but the way in which we structure our society, um, I think would help hold that door open just a little bit longer to bring those
0: different perspectives into the room. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's just very lightning rod information, you know, yeah. and, um, topics, you know, it's just I have been around people when you discuss these things, it immediately causes a very dramatic shift and change in their physiology and their emotional state. And I'm very fascinated by that because I'm, I'm not someone who's very jarred by things like mm-hmm. that. I just pretty even keel and I'm just like, okay, well let's discuss it. And uh, maybe I don't agree this and that, but let's, but it, it's definitely these, one of these hot button things, I think. in it seems like a public health thing that has become such a, a very, very, you know, uh, heavily examined, looked at, documentary style, everything about climate change. And the opinions are so strong. They're extremely strong about it. Uh, but I do think it's something that uh, we we got to do something. We got to we got to stop bickering about it and start to have more action about it.
1: Yeah. And it's so hard. How, how does one be active when you're stuck working one, if not two jobs to be able to keep the roof over your head. Right. And you're, you have a family to take care of. You have, um, I mean, as, as much as I, as I preach and I hope to embody the philosophy of our and, and, and community. I mean, we are in a place where it's like, like I have my own family and I have my own personal struggles that are very, very real and very, very in my face. So how do I, how do I even begin to address this global phenomena when I am, right. there's so much in my own life that is tumultuous.
0: I totally agree with that. And there's, there's a large element, I think on the individual level, it's people are many times just trying to survive. Yep. You yep. know, there's just the whole statistics about, I can't remember the exact statistics, maybe it's 60, 70%. The, you know, people couldn't afford a $500 emergency in their life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you're that, that many people, at that level of of critical issue, then the environment or climate change is not a huge priority to them, Um, which is hard. So then it comes back to the whole issue of, okay, how do you make people's existence better so that they can free themselves to think about these higher, maybe these, these issues that are much larger than themselves per se, global issues. It's very difficult to have a global issue conversation when you are, mired in a very difficult uh, home life or you're working two or three jobs just to literally get by. It's very difficult the, to be to have a, a heart for larger conversations related to climate change. So there's another kind of uh, kind of a roadblock in a sense for that.
1: Yeah, you know, universal basic income could be pretty handy.
0: <laughs> well, you know, what's funny. I, I had actually never heard of it until a year or two ago. Maybe it's just, just my naivete of it whatever. But um, it wasn't until I had started listening to Andrew Yang and um, and then I started researching it and then I started hearing him talking about this is a, not a not a new idea. You know, it's a pretty old idea, actually. And, um, you know, I've I listened to all these podcasts and him. People say, well, well, take away people's drive to work. And, you know, deriving meaningness, meaningfulness out of work and stuff. You know, he had, some, he had some very eloquent answers and logical answers about that, that it's not a work replacement. It's just kind of the, this initial step. You know, you're a citizen of the country. This will help you to have take the, you know, basically the foot off your neck so that you can actually have some room to breathe to pursue other things in your life uh, with that. And I think that's where the struggle is for a lot of people is. They're in this never-ending hamster wheel that never allows them to have this higher operations thinking because they can't afford to have that. And
1: yeah, and I think and that's I mean that's a tool that's a that's that is a tool um, that has existed since the industrial age. Yes, if you keep people at if you pay them barely anything, work them as hard to the bone so they're tired you that you have very little challengers coming up against you right um if someone happens to disagree yeah that is that is a that is a societal level tool to keep people quote in their place end quote right
0: well you know i start thinking about a universal basic income and i think what it when it becomes very realistic for me is when i think about people in my life that i've known throughout the years and i thought man how amazing would that have have been for them throughout their lives. I thought about myself when I was in college, you know, when I turned 18 and imagine if I had that when I was in college starting out and I had some money to be able to enjoy myself, go out to dinner every once in a while, take a friend out to dinner, whoever, um, you know, and then you take that as you get older, you know, maybe you're not working a job that you want to work, but you do know you have some other money coming in that will help you stay afloat a little bit, just a little bit, so that you can pursue other things you want to do. And I think it just continues to go up from there. I think it can be a difficult fight on some level because you're going to have people say, you're just handing out money to people. How are you going to pay for it? And and I think Andrew Yang has some great great alternatives in terms of how we're paying for it and stuff like that. But I think you are always just run up against people who are going, you're just handing people money out you know that's not American type of thing you know mm-hmm. is it I don't know I mean like
1: I mean it <laughs> depends on who you yeah. what
0: type of American I don't know like <laughs> this whole patriotism thing we have like I don't know this love it or leave it mentality and you know this antiquated idea of America and I think we're changing pretty dramatically that we can't hold on to these old ways all the time of how things are and That just, you know, I would have loved to have a universal basic income at one point in my life. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know. No, I think these are just great conversations to have because it's very difficult for somebody who lives in a project and and an underserved community to say, why don't you get your shit together? It's easy to say that. Okay, uh, that's a little bit hard to do in that type of environment, you know?
1: Most definitely. And it's this, there's also a uh, generate, I mean, each generation ha- has had its own um, either like financial glory or financial downfall right. in something um, that's really hard, especially as a student and like thinking back to college and, and coming through. I am very, I am, I am going to acknowledge a- extreme privilege here and, and thankfulness for um, the fortune of graduating without any um, student loans.
0: That's um, another huge and, issue. I, I did not, I had very little myself. That's another huge issue that you can d- yeah. talk about. I mean, crazy.
1: And the idea that it's like, Oh, these, these young people are, are lazy and they're <laughs> not owning homes and they don't want to like support local business. And it's like, we're, we're trying.
0: <laughs> um, like We're trying, man. <laughs>
1: Like we we have these financial obstacles that you when you were going to college Mm in the seventies didn't even think would happen. Like you could not imagine. Like can you imagine like it is going to school in nineteen seventies paying five hundred per semester to go to private school? Like it's unreal. And there's a disconnect, right? You can have uh, boomers and millennials yelling at each other all day, but it's like, okay, can we come together and just be like, okay, you listen to my experience and now it's my turn to listen to yours. And we are living in, in two different realities that, that exists simultaneously. I'm so glad that you enjoyed such um, fruitfulness in your youth. The youth of today do not have that mm. unless you're you're born with it pretty much if your parents can help you like my parents had had um the generosity and the ability to do with it it is hard to say like graduate college now uh, you should be rocking it
0: <laughs> That's... right yeah no it's it, you know i get into these discussions a lot about millennials and different generations and, you know, the, the stereotypes of millennials, but you know, I'm, I'm a generation Z, you know, I grew up Mm -hmm. in the, not Z, sorry, generation X and uh, my daughter would be Z. Sorry. Uh, But um, you know, we were the, we were supposed to be the um, slackers generation X, like, Oh, you guys are lazy. I'm not a lazy person. I've never been a lazy person. I think it's just these large societal misconceptions that people have. I, I know many millennials, they're incredibly amazing people. Incredibly, um, now are there some things that people say have stereotypes of like living at home longer and stuff? Sure, I see that a lot, but I also know people who are in their you know late thirties doing that too. So yep. you know, I mean, it's not like it's an endemic of one thing and not the under other, but there are different times. I mean, you just take technology. Technology is so drastically different from when I was in college in the nineties to where it is now. Is gigantically different for that. And it's just, and I think what's interesting, what I want to ask you to is what is the public health, what do you see as the public health um, issues or perspective for millennials? Like, what is the, maybe, maybe what have you seen as kind of the general um, ideas or perceptions of public health for people in, in, in that generation?
1: Um, well, I will start by saying that this is uh, not an area that I'm super familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, being a millennial, that is pretty inept at, so- at social media. Um,
2: <laughs> uh,
1: but from the public health perspective, I know that there is a lot of work um, going into how social media has changed our psychology and our mental health.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that is the biggest area that I see, um, rates of, uh, suicide going up, um, among, um, among millennial generations specifically. Um, but there's also a lot of, a lot of power in using, uh, in using, Social media. I don't know. I, I don't know if you're familiar with or have utilized there. Are so I see on my Facebook all the time these like different apps that people can access for therapy or telemedicine. Hmm. Um, so you may not be able to afford to go to an actual doctor, but um, and to avoid paying uh, out the wall to go to an emergency or uh, an emergency clinic or emergency room, you can. Um, you can access health professionals with your phone. Like that is pretty cool. Yeah. Powerful and has a lot, has a lot of potential. Um, but yeah, other than that, that's something that I'd have to read more about.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, I just, I don't have a good sense of, you know, just millennial culture and public health. I was, that's why I was like, Oh, maybe you have some idea about it, but, uh, I, I'm just fascinated by millennials. I'm fascinated by baby boomers too. And, and looking at where, you know, you know, kind of this, I guess, inverted triangle we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm not sure if a lot of people know this, but I think it's something that I've been paying attention to uh, pretty closely as of late. And, um, but it sounds like you're, you're working in that environment. You're doing research. Talk a little bit about that, you know?
1: Yeah, so when you say inverted triangle, are you talking about like our population age groups?
0: Yes, yes.
1: So actually, um, we are much less of a triangle and more of a rectangle. Mm. Um, So with the baby boomers, uh, before the baby boomers, we had more of that triangular shape. Um, People were aging into older cohorts, Mm -hmm. having more kids. Uh, with the baby boomers, we have this, uh, we have a bulge. And if, if uh, your listeners and yourself are to just Google uh, the demographic transition, what you'll see is a bunch of uh, what we call population pyramids mm. come up. So it's basically, this is what the population in the world or in the United States or in Somalia uh, looks like based on, um, the different age groups that are recorded in in whatever denominator group you're interested in. So in the U.S., um, people aren't as ha- aren't having as many kids, and people are living to an older time. So we have we have instead of a pyramid shape, we have uh, a we have a rectangle. Now we have more um, our generations uh, that current that are still currently living. Um, are similar in size uh, as we've uh, aged into older cohorts, um, because we, we are getting the last of kind of the the greatest generation. Um, many of those people are still alive, but that is, I believe, the oldest generation mm-hmm. live in the US right now. And uh, yeah, less people are having kids and more people are growing older. And while, thankfully, um, the majority of older people are um, thriving and doing really, really well um, with the increase in just people getting into their 80s and 90s.
2: Right. There's
1: an increase in people who can no longer live independently um, and are living, needing to adapt to a life with greater functional and sometimes cognitive impairment. Right. Uh, and we as a society, like we, when when the Older Americans Act and the uh, Omnibus Protections Act were written, that things that started the conversation around uh, Medicare and public funding for older Americans, um, we did not anticipate people as living as long as they do now. Yes. But we as a, We as a society, like no one wants to think, it's nice when we have our grandparents around us and and we can we can learn from and share in the wisdom of older individuals um, if they if they choose to share it. Uh, but no one ever thinks like I'm going to be there someday. We are not forward thinking like that. Yeah. If we have the opportunity and, and the good fortune to live into old age, hopefully um, with uh, less physical issues than some. Um, I, I hope that the world looks a little bit different. And that's kind of why I do the work that I do and I study older people and, where, and kind of where they live and, and their housing situations. Because I, I, I challenge you if you have the time in your schedule um, to, to take a visit, make a visit to a, a local assisted living facility and just see the people who are working there and the people who are living there. And I want you to ask yourself, if you go and visit is this the place where I want to be should I need these services when I'm older
0: right my wife yeah. works in one by the way she's oh, a nurse great. and I've been in many in my life oh, and she's always worked in assisted cool. living so I'm very familiar with the environment excellent
1: that's that's awesome so many people out there they have it is completely off their radar they're not it's so not they're not people. even
0: thinking about it yeah
1: yeah. So it's, it's the sort of thing where, um, I mean, I love living in the present. It's some like mindfulness and, and being in the present is, is a challenge for me. It's something that I, I personally like to work on. But also just like we, we are so focused on the now and so focused on youth. I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on youth and children. Awesome. That work is going into there. But there is very little being done, and so little that we understand. I mean, there has never been a time where we've had so many people existing all over the globe that are are as old as they are now. Right. So many people in their 90s and and passing 100. I know, I'm not sure... um, how how this statement was made, so I don't know if I'm irresponsible in saying it, but I, I hear it floating around that the first person to live to 150 years old is has been born. Hmm. Um, or the, the probability... That
0: I've heard that too. Oh.
1: So... Um, so what are we going to do about that? Like, yes, kind of going back to the upstream downstream metaphor like we like people, even though they're having less children, people are not going to stop having children, right? But people aren't going to just stop growing old either.
0: That's true. <laughs> Why do you so, think people are having less children on the opposite end of that? I know I saw that there were, we're at a what 30 year historic low uh, of birth rates in the United States. I mean, I may be misquoting that, but I had read something similar to that.
1: Um, well, uh, kids are expensive. <laughs> yes. Um, so they are expensive. Um, I also think, um, and I'm proud to say that, uh, we have more of a choice of what our family structures look like. I mean, with reproductive health and, uh, access to things like birth control. Um, if you want to have sex with your partner, you can do so and not necessarily produce a child. Right. <laughs> So uh, there's, there, I think there's a lot more choice that was not afforded to older generations.
0: I just um, got in a conversation about this, actually, that, that that while there was more of this expectation, especially you know, for women to have all these children a long time ago, and, and they may not have wanted that for their life, but they mm-hmm. felt that was the, the societal expectation for that. And then now there's the expectation, is the choice expectation is there, like, you don't have to do this. You're not pushed into yeah. this uh, for that. And I think that's very interesting points of view change. You know. Yeah.
1: And if I can share something Please. personal with you, like I, I personally do not um, wish to produce children. Uh, and I say that very intentionally because I guarantee that one day I'm going to be an awesome mom. I just don't think from a, from a personal moral standpoint, given where we are with climate change and given where we are with how many kids are currently in the foster care system, I do not feel the need to produce a new life. Right. My partner and I are very um, fortunate that we have hearts that um, are open. We, we feel that we can love a child no matter if we made it or not. Um, so I think another, uh, thing that's changing and I hope it, it, it kind of picks up speed is that looking to adoption is not a last ditch option, uh, for making a family. Um, it doesn't have to be a last resort. I know for many people, um, uh, uh, having biological children is something that's really important or even imperative. That is, they will not have children if they, if they are not biologically connected. Um, but also recognizing that there are children out there that, that exist and, and would love to be
0: in a loving home and have a family. I would have to tell you, so everybody listening, when you're going to listen to this, again, I don't know Sarah, but she, what I'm going to tell her is going to be very interesting. So we have not had a previous conversation about this. Anything we're talking about right now is literally off the cuff. So I, mm-hmm. my wife and I, had the same thing. We did not want to produce a biological child. That was not an wow. intention for us. We got together and we were twenty-four years old. We got married when we were around twenty-six. And I remember when we, when we had some. We did a, you know the pre-marriage counseling deal, and and they asked us you know what do you think about children. And we both said we we want to adopt. We do not want to have a biological child. It was not something we were interested in, and our motivation was primarily that, you know, listen, There, there is quite a bit bit of kids out there who need a home. I mean, we, we've seen it, you know, throughout the course of our lifetime, like, man, adoption's amazing. A lot of, actually, we had a lot of friends in Las Vegas who uh, had adopted children, and it just seemed so loving and so caring. And I started thinking to myself, my wife too, was like, what's the difference? Like, what's the pull? And I get it. I'm just I understand the conversation. Other people saying, hey, they need to have this this biological pull for that. We just never had that. And what was interesting is we wanted our we wanted to adopt so that and this is a sports reference, I guess. For me, I like sports a lot, was we wanted our number one draft choice to be uh, an adoption. We wanted our daughter to be adopted. We wanted to make sure that we didn't, we didn't get her because she was the last stop on the train. And we were like, well, we did these other things 10 times and all that. And I'm not disparaging people who do that because they, they have that feeling that's up to them. It's their personal choices. But I thought, what would it be like if that child knew that they were the first option, not the last. And I remember we were in our adoption classes and there was like nine other couples And, you know, they're all telling their stories. And, you know, uh, eight of the couples had gone through a tremendous amount of uh, IBF rounds. And that stuff's expensive. I didn't know how expensive it was. When I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, it's incredible. And uh, again, not disparaging their story. It's their story. However they got there is how they got there. But we got up there and we were like, yeah, we just never tried. We just uh, started we'd just go this route. And everybody was like, really? (laughs) You know, it was like. Very different approach. And uh, so we adopted a beautiful one-month-old girl, Anna Rose, and she's outside of my door now. She's eight years old now. And um, it's been one of the best things I've ever done in my life is uh, doing adoption. And I think more people are coming around to it. So it's just funny you're mentioning that, and I'm smiling, and I'm like, we have never met each other. And we have this hilarious <laughs> thing, like this, this weird thing about crazy.
1: That's pretty amazing, right? You are the first, you are the first person that I have shared that with that has felt similarly, honestly. What were the other opinions? Um, I get a lot of, of scoffing. Um, I, uh, this is from family and, and strangers alike. Uh, There's just this, why, why would you want to do that? There's, there's a lot of, uh, um, just a, It's a thought that people in my life would, would never have, which is hilarious because I have on both sides of my family, I have two adopted cousins, <laughs> um, but the thought that like, I wouldn't try to be pregnant first um, just wouldn't, wouldn't cross their minds. It's like, and those adoptions happened because um, their moms couldn't get pregnant. Um, right. And they wanted to be moms, and it was. And I love them, and I'm so thankful that they're in our family. But yeah, I get, I get a lot of oh, um, I was, I recently got married in March, and so mm-hmm. after being hammered with when are you getting married, when are you getting married, <laughs> um, I'm being hammered with, so when are you having a baby, when are you having a right? Baby? And uh, those questions are irritating. Listeners Completely. don't ask people Don't ask. I
0: totally agree. No, don't ask people that don't put your don't work out your own stuff on other people. You
1: know? Yeah. Um, And I say, well, you know, like, uh, um, if I have a baby, that's great. That's another thing. Um,
2: If
0: I yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's uh, I'm not um, if I uh, my partner and I adopt um, if it is a baby. Awesome. If it's an older child also awesome mm-hmm. um, I don't I don't feel the need to, to have an infant as well um, and so when uh, people ask me this question I respond you know I'm not sure when it's going to happen but I will tell you that um, I, I will not be I, I do want to have children I just don't want to produce them yeah and uh, their their faces get all twisted and they're like wait what is something wrong and I'm like no nothing's wrong uh, and I've learned I've, I've learned to 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 kind of set up a boundary in that if, if you are actually interested in in wanting to know why I don't want to produce children, I will share that with you. But your opinions are not invited or welcome here. So if you are able to listen um, right. and just and just do that, um, I will share with you. Uh, but before when I when I would just be like, hey, I feel really strongly about this. Um, I think we can do this. Yeah, it's it was a lot of uh, women in my life being, oh, but you don't know what you're missing. Mm.
2: I'm
1: like that. That's not the point. <laughs> that's,
0: yeah, know. you know it's it's interesting. My you know my wife has never been pregnant, honestly, because of the adoption. And 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 it's funny. My wife has worked in assisted living forever, but she's also worked in OB a long time as well. <laughs> and you know she's been around lots of babies and i and i asked her you know honestly i said do you do you ever think about wishing you were pregnant she was like uh, not really she said sometimes i think about it like maybe you know but she goes eh, it's okay you know and like and she's she's very honest about it and i think sometimes it's hard for other people and maybe other women to who are very passionate about pregnancy and stuff to, to understand that there are women who are not like that. And, right. that. and that's okay. You don't have to be the same version of woman over and over again. Just like I don't have to be the same version of a man. This, mm-hmm. this what society tells me I should be like as a man. I do not have to comply with that. It's, and so it's, it's interesting, I think, about why people have such these strong reactions when you're telling them about this? And what is it about them that they feel this way? You know?
1: Yeah, I know. It's, I, what I tell myself and um, what I hope to kind of get engaged into a more um, collaborative conversation with these individuals is uh, attachments to just social norms. Yes. Um, just, why so i mean the reason why i got married is my my husband uh he's from iran
2: mm-hmm. and
1: he he just graduated with his doctorate in civil engineering so he um he's an international student and in order to apply for a green card in this country you need to be legally married right um and I faced. I mean, I am so happy that I am. I am with this person. Uh, we complement each other so well, and it's wonderful. I'm excited to build a life with him. Um, but I had spent a good portion of my adolescence into my adulthood telling other people and myself that I was never going to get married. I didn't get it. the The institution of mm-hmm. marriage, what it what it means, uh, like what how it reinforces. Um, the gender binary in some in some areas. Uh, I just didn't understand why my relationship needed to be um, needed to be acknowledged in that specific way. Like I can love someone and make a lifelong commitment to them without mm-hmm. going through um, the pony show of a wedding, and then coming into this situation where I had to. I had to very, very much go against what I had been telling myself and other people for years.
2: Um, I do not
1: regret it at all. I'm, I'm very happy that, that uh, we got the green card application in, he's got it, everything is fine. Wouldn't change any decisions. But the idea that, you know, you grow up, you go to college, you meet partner, you marry partner, you produce children <laughs> with a partner. You buy house. It's so programmed. And specific. <laughs> this is what we measure. This is what we measure success by. And it, right. it just, it, it, I, do, I don't get it. Why does it have to be so prescriptive?
0: I think you're right. It's these notions of these social norms. And, and then we, as a society, we start following them like sheep in a pasture. And we just move all towards the stream of consciousness. And then when, people come along who swim upstream or who are outside of that social norm, we, we, we look at them as pariahs and we go, wow, why can't you conform to this mm-hmm. level of thinking? And it was interesting. I was just on a phone call with a connection of mine from Germany. And we, we both were talking about how, like, we do not like to be can conform to these social norms all the time. It's like it's okay to have yeah. your own thought process and and if and create your own pathway that is not similar to what everybody you don't need the white picket fence. I'm telling everybody out here, you if you <laughs> want that, great. Go for it. But if you don't, don't feel bad about it. Don't let somebody tell you that that's wrong. Like me, I've been married 15 years. I love being married. It's wonderful. My brother is only, and I'm 41, my brother's 39, he's never been married and he doesn't want to get married. And I said, hey, that's cool. Whatever works for you, man. It's just not for him. Now, should I say, hey, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you doing this? No, it's his life. Who cares if he doesn't get married? As long as he feels good about the decision, he wants to do what's in his life just because he's not following what all these people say he should do. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, he's probably much happier than somebody who is forcing themselves into a marriage because they're supposed to do it, unquote. You know? And I just never get that. I don't, I just, as I've gotten older, I'm just like much more into the idea of like, you know, there's just various pathways to meaningfulness and happiness for people that do not include the societal norms of you have to do this, you have to do that. Why do you have to go to college? I went to college, I loved it, it was great. But that doesn't mean that everybody will. And if you even look at the graduation rates for college, not that high. <laughs> they're not high. I don't know if a lot of people know, but like it's not a large percentage of people that actually graduate college, which means there's a large portion of people that shouldn't be there. Actually, they're just not for them. It was for me. I loved every second of it, it was pretty awesome. And it is like that for a lot of people. But does not mean it's for every single person? It's just, you can't keep sticking these square pegs into a circular hole and expecting that they'll be happy with it.
1: Yeah. And I think you can be, you can definitely be curious about somebody's different choices, but at the end of the day, like if it, if it's upsetting you in some way, like why do you care what someone else is doing or what path? Right. Well,
0: that's what I always think about. That's what see to Sarah that's what I always think about. Yeah. What is the root going back the root? What is the root cause of somebody feeling strongly about you not having a biological child or someone not getting married? What is the root cause of their angst about it? That's that's curious to me, you know.
1: Yeah. If, I mean, if you can reflect on that and think of any answers, please let me
0: know. I, <laughs> I know, but I, these are the things I think about, you know, like, I think this is like Justin and I, and we were talking, we were going all over the place with different things and masculinity and roles. And I just think like, if I have a visceral reaction to something and I have in the, in many, in the past, over who hasn't to things over the course of their life and something that they were like, whoa. I have to, I think to myself in self reflection why did I get so upset about that
2: mm-hmm. and
0: often it's because it hurt me in some way there was something about it that has affected me in my past or something I felt really weird about that made that came out because of their decision it made me feel uncomfortable about maybe what I'm doing you know type of thing and and sometimes I think maybe those people are reinforcing those ideas because they don't actually believe those ideas. They're making themselves trying to believe that idea that they're not into type of thing. I don't know. It's just a thought I'm having, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and if back to the critical thinking, I am, I'm something that I have learned and I continue to learn and practice. I get, uh, being in a graduate degree program, um, just because I'm a stud- I'm officially a student now doesn't mean my learning will end when I am no longer a student. Right. And something that is challenging for me is uh, because what I'm being trained to do is kind of argue and be persuasive about the ideas and beliefs that I think are important and should be shared within um, the scientific community and the larger community. But if I take off that hat, or even with that hat on, actually, I'm going to take that back Mm -hmm. within all of my roles um, as a student, as a partner, as a family member, as a friend, it is really, really hard when you are used to advocating for your own opinion and your own stance to kind of take a step back and analyze where those come from. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard thing, you know? It's like everybody wants to feel that they're, um, they're doing the right thing and they're believing in the right thing and they, to feel good about how they're living their lives. But we're not right all the time. Um, and it's important, I mean, not only to, uh, to be open to someone else calling you into that, but also being able to recognize um, your own complacency within your thought process. Mm. There's there's a great quote that I don't, I know it's somebody else's quote. I don't have the exact words, but the essence of it is if everybody in the room or if you are agreeing with your own thoughts, something's up. There needs to be like, you need to be questioning um, and, and constantly evaluating. This is iterative. Just because you you did the work one day doesn't mean you stop doing the work for the rest of your life. Right. You need to be constantly evaluating why you think the things you do and being okay with changing if, if that's the course that you're on.
0: Like, yeah, man. Uh, I, I'm very into that. I'm totally into that. That's very hard for a lot of people, though, I would say. And that is extremely hard. I mean, I think, you know, you grow up in these systems and these right. ways of living, and they're, they're tightly woven into people's fabric of how they live and operate. And, and for some people, you're asking them to, in, many, in some way, shatter that. Of, because, you know, it's, it's kind of this thing of like when you grow up and you see your parents in a certain light. You know, you have your child mind and you see them. And then when you grow up and you start getting a little more hip to what's going on and the people they are, and you start learning more about your parents and you go, do I like these people? (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) do do what I associate, I've had this discussion and, and, and thankfully for me, I love my parents. I, I choose to be a big part of their lives. They choose to be a big part of my life. We are very symbiotic people. We are, they're wonderful people. I, I, I can look back at my childhood and go, they did a good job. They they did a great job. Mm-hmm. And I, and And I can reconcile my child mind with my adult mind and how they are as people. And as I continue to learn about their things that they were doing during the formative years of my life, you know I asked I ask myself this question when I was in my early 20s, I was like, do I like these people? Do I respect these people? Do I And I think sometimes people don't well, a lot of times they don't do that. you know you know and that's just one case but the, but that's I feel like that's kind of a similar thing. It's, it's like, right? hey, let me evaluate this. Where am I at right now? Is what I'm feeling today the same as I felt? last year about this or is there, do I have a different feeling? And I think that, that, and, and I'm just going to put it out there. I think that's so prevalent in the way people vote for things in their life. Mm. I'm just talking about presidential elections and stuff like just voting in general. If someone, if you're voting towards what your family voted for a generational voting, people are very stuck in that mindset because they don't, they much rather stay conformed to what they've learned versus having critical, Thinking and analysis of, is this the right decision for me and not for the people in my family, per se, or this lineage that we have, and this is what we always do, type of thing. And I think that's incredibly difficult for people to separate that, at least in what I've seen.
1: It is, and it's a hard ask, right? I mean, it, it is hard to look at yourself in the mirror and say wow, are these things that I believe to be valuable and I believe to be true, are there alternative perspectives? And if I do think a certain way, is it hurting other people? Like that's a mm. hard thing to, it is so, yes. like there is so much truth to the phrase ignorance is bliss. Because once <laughs> you know, yeah. you cannot unknow.
0: Right, right. Right.
1: And so it, it's difficult. And, and you have to be I mean, you have to be ready to meet yourself there. If not, mm. if not do that with other people. You have to be open to that and that, to that self-analysis and be in whatever comes of it. Um, and that I mean, getting to that phase in and of itself.
0: Mm. I just got chills when you said that you got to be ready to meet yourself. I mean, I literally was like, Woo, fire, <laughs> ready to meet yourself. I don't think a lot of people are ready to meet themselves. That's just my opinion. I've known a ton of people, continue to know a lot of people. That's a lot of hard work in being ready to meet yourself. You might not like what you meet when you get there. Ooh, that's a hot hot take right there. That's a hot take. (laughs) I'm going to be thinking about that one. I'm definitely going to be thinking about that one. That is so powerful. Are we ready for that? I can tell you, for me, I'm always ready to meet myself. Cause I, But I'm also the type of person, I'm always willing to check myself.
2: Mm-hmm. Where,
0: where am I at? How do I feel about this? How do I want to contribute in my life that maybe I need to contribute differently than what I've been doing? How do I stretch myself? Uh, but it, it's not always like that. It's not to say that I'm better. I'm not better. It's just where I'm at. It's just I have found in my travels that, Meeting yourself is not something people want to do quite a bit. Uh, that's it's not not happening a lot that I've seen. You know,
1: not that I see either. And imagine if we turned turned the camera inward, so to speak, and instead of pointing, it's easy to call out others. Imagine oh, yeah. where we could be if we just brought it home first, before calling out anybody else, checking ourselves. And then proceeding
0: outward. Well, it's just like you know, with with your work with public health, and you know, large these large kind of societal topics is we think, okay, well, the government's not doing this and that, that. But what are you doing to Mm -hmm. to help help be a part of that? How are you contributing in your own situation to create a more positive public health perception? or or the action behind it. But it's very easy to scream at a larger entity and say, they're not doing anything. Like, well, you're not doing anything either. So I mean, it's not like you're helping out also. You know, it's very difficult to turn that back on yourself. For sure. Because like I said,
1: once you know, you cannot unknow.
0: You cannot unknow. And once you have knowledge on something, people expect you to have that knowledge and to be able to use it. And to be able to disseminate that. And I think that, you know, it's that, that expectation, which is why when I used, I used to teach in the academic world and it's, it was always, you think, oh, it's crazy. Why do students drop out right before graduation? Of course I know now, now the expectation of knowing things like now, they're going to expect me to be good at this before. If I had low expectations, if I did well, people go, look at, he did better. And we had no, we had no clue. He was going to do that. Well, (laughs) you know, it's like, it changes the whole conversation. Once you know, then your standards of living and knowing become that standard at that point. And, and that, that can be very make daunting. And you a choice. Yeah,
1: you yeah. have to choose to to live up to that standard or turn a blind eye to what you've discovered.
0: Right. Whoo, man, you got me thinking today. I tell you, this is a uh, Sarah. I am incredibly grateful that you agreed to come on and I got to tell you this is one of the more insightful deep uh conceptual conversations I've had with anybody on here so uh, I am eternally grateful that you decided to come on
1: I'm so glad you decided to have me I was I was really nervous at first I'm not I'm not your traditional guest I I have <laughs> Other than other than Justin uh, being a wonderful personal trainer, that's how I know him. Yeah. Um, my connection to the fitness world is very, very far away.
0: <laughs> but you know what? That's what I want. I actually am. Uh, while I, my, my guests are in health and wellness, like in fitness primarily, because it's it's what I've been in forever, and it's it's an easier way for me to to get to talk to people and stuff. But you know, I'm growing to show to start meeting more people like yourself and particularly I love research and I love researchers and I like people who are on the ground level researching fascinating topics I am more than a fitness professional and I like to stretch that and and be talking to people who are doing things that I don't have a huge amount of knowledge in and I think our listeners will be will be thankful for that because it's just another perspective for them so as soon as he Justin's great. He sent me a bunch of people because I think he's a very wide open person. He's interested in different perspectives. And when I saw your bio and everything, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. I I got to have her on the show. <laughs> you know.
1: I'm I'm very grateful. And thank you for um, being vulnerable and sharing with me. And uh, we have we have way more connections than I ever expected.
0: I know. Isn't that the beauty of just chatting, you know, yeah. and just talking and I have a few other people coming up who I haven't talked to ahead of time. And, you know, they're a little nervous and they're like, I don't know what should we talk about? I'm like, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I'm used to talking to people like this all the time and your life is important. Your story is important. And I guarantee you will have things to talk about. No problem. <laughs> you know? And
1: thank you for creating a space to do just that. It is truly a valuable thing.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. And I look forward to other people in your life listening to your conversation and my listeners. And um, I look forward to a future conversation with you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Yes,
1: of course, Darian. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Bye. Bye.